Welcome to For Fintech's Sake, hosted by Zach Anderson Pettit. Zach is managing director of an accelerator called Fountain City Fintech and VP at MBKC Bank. For Fintech's Sake is a broad look at the world of fintech. Building the future of financial services requires deep understanding of both technology and finance. From the perspectives of founders, investors, and incumbents, we will explore the stories of people living at the intersection of finance and technology. All opinions expressed by Zach and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect those of MBKC Bank. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Hi, and welcome to another episode of For Fintech's Sake. This is your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. I've actually got two guests with me this week, Ben Milne and Harper Reed. Ben is the CEO at Dwalla, where he was named Inc.'s 30 Under 30, Goldman Sachs' 100 Most Intriguing Entrepreneurs, MIT's Innovators Under 35. He's also just an awesome dude, and from my point of view, kind of the philosopher king of startups in the Midwest. If the Midwest had a Naval, I honestly think it would be Ben. And then Harper is a unique individual as well, a serial entrepreneur and CTO of the Obama campaign in 2012. Currently, he's a director's fellow at the MIT Media Lab. He was previously an EIR at PayPal, head of commerce at Braintree. Uh, and as I said, he started a couple companies. So suffice it to say, these are two fascinating individuals that I got to sit down and have a conversation with. But I should probably explain how this happened. So I was in Des Moines for a conference that was being put on by Dwalla uh, and just the community called Monetary. It was an amazing conference and I was actually coming into the Dwalla offices to sit down with Ben the morning after and as I was kind of walking up uh, to have the conversation with Ben, he mentioned to me that Harper was hanging around and we ended up just having a conversation amongst the three of us. Uh, initially, I was planning to talk to Ben about a good amount of, you know, fintech centric stuff. It kind of transitioned into a much broader conversation about life. We cover burnout and how to manage through it and hopefully eventually avoid it, uh, why regulation matters at an early stage and how politics plays into that dynamic. And one of my favorite points of the whole episode is when Harper points out that most of the best decisions in life actually just start with two words, fuck it. And with that, you now realize why this episode was marked explicit content. The last thing I should mention before we jump into the actual interview is that I actually only had two microphones for this conversation. So there's a bit of handing back and forth between Harper and I. So you'll kind of hear me occasionally like yelling a thing and then Harper starting a sentence and then getting the microphone. So bear with us. Uh, I, I edited through it as much of it as I could, but it really was an amazing conversation. So I wanted to keep all of it, even if the audio was slightly off a little bit. All right. Enjoy my interview with Ben Milne and Harper Reed. Hello, uh, my name is Harper Reed. I am an entrepreneur living in Chicago, Illinois, and um, my background is I have always done technology and been involved with startups and whatnot for quite a while. I was with a company called Threadless back in the day, and then I was a CTO for the Obama campaign for a little bit, and then I started a company called Modest, which we sold to PayPal, and I was at PayPal for a few years. Um, and so that's a very quick, quick intro of me. That was an incredibly quick intro of you. You just packed <laughs> a couple decades into, you know, 20 seconds. But all right, we'll, we'll dig into that more. Ben, how did, how did you guys meet? And maybe just a quick background on, on Ben Mellon as well. I think we met through the internet, Twitter. I think that's right, isn't it? I think it is right. I mean, I followed you because you kept saying great things about 
having a startup and being an entrepreneur in a non-San Francisco community, um, being that we're in Des Moines and I live in Chicago, and I always admired that, but what I liked about what you were saying was it was much less about, um, or it was much less apologetic and more just about how do you take advantage of the strengths of your com your community, which I think is important. Like it's every community has different strengths, and being in Iowa is a different thing than being in San Francisco. And you get different tools to work with. You get different people. Um, for instance, in Chicago, I don't know the stats about Iowa. Um, I always liked that the tenure of employee was like six years. In San Francisco, it's like eighteen months. So I know that when I'm building a team, like I get this team that's going to be there for a while. We're going to be able to really get some stuff done with the same team. And so curating a team is much more interesting. Um, and I always found like, how do you, how do you do that? And I always admired what you were saying on Twitter. So I think that was probably where I got hooked in. Thanks, man. I, um, Nick Lieber always had a lot of nice things to say about you. And Ken, who also works here, always had like a lot of nice things. Yeah. And um, also, your Twitter feed has uh, dynamic things, which makes it always like the interesting non-banking thing that shows up in my feed that I always enjoy. Um, but yeah, I appreciate you being here. Yeah. I feel like this is a random series of events that kind of brought us to this room. Um, as Zach said, we're sitting at Dwala, um, which is what I've been doing for almost 10 years. Uh, new Dwala is about three years old. Old Dwala was put to bed about three years ago. And, um, you know, that's it. Dwell's payments infrastructure. We connect our customer software to banking infrastructure. For the, for the record, just on the, on the Twitter note, the first time that I looked at Harper's Twitter, I was pretty sure that he was Satoshi. <laughs> just to... <laughs> I wish that had him laughing on it. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I don't know if I'm smart enough to be Satoshi. There's just a, a requirement of, like, good cryptography skills and some math. And then, yeah, I'm, that's not me. There was, there was like this hint of like kind of glimmer in your eye at the beginning of that statement that makes me kind of second guess you. But anyways, we'll just, we'll, we'll push through it. We'll push through it. You may be sitting on a lot more Bitcoin than we know, but anyways. Um, so one thing that I think is interesting about the two of you and kind of a conversation that we were having beforehand um, is kind of this idea of balance or this idea of like the things that you do outside of the office or that you do kind of in life to keep you sane and keep you happy as we move through these insane things that we do. Um, so I don't really know what the question is even. I mean, I just kind of want to keep it as an open conversation, but Ben, what are, what are some of the things through the years that have kind of, you know, from Dwala one through kind of Dwala two that have kept you, kept you sane? I know family is a big part of that, but like, what are kind of the, the day-to-day -day things you do? Yeah. My, my partner, Jamie normalized the hell out of me. Um, life was, Roller coaster sounds like a kind of ridiculous thing to say because it, as it is, but life was just really unpredictable for a long time. And I married, I married way, 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 way up and out of my league, emotionally, intellectually, artistically, and that created a lot of normality in my life. That, well, yeah, it normaled me out in a lot of different ways. And I feel like now it's a lot about kind of work-life harmony, um, which sounds also kind of ridiculous, but. My kids go to school up and down the street that we're on. Our conference was next door. On a perfect day, I get to ride my bike into work and ride at home and see my kids before they go to bed and when they wake up. It's, it doesn't sound too extravagant, but it's pretty good. It feels pretty good. Well, I've been thinking about this for a long time, and um, I've always been very interested in data. You know, My career, obviously, has kind of orbited data for a, for a bit, 
And the first thing I started to do was kind of just quantify what, like how things were going, weight, sleep, et cetera, but with no um, insight and no actual success. All it was was just getting this data in front of me and I would just be like, I'm done, I've got the data. And I just noticed that that wasn't actually doing anything. I just was like, great, I stored it. Um, and, and what I also realized was I didn't actually have difficult times. Um, and so I was unprepared for when times got difficult. And I'd had a very lucky life. And then um, it was in the middle of the Obama campaign where it was like, um, oh boy, this is terrible. Like what we're doing right now is really, really hard. Um, the t it's hard for the team. Everything is really, really difficult. So I don't have what it takes to survive. Um, and I started changing a lot of my own behavior. So a couple things that I tried to do was I would always make sure I got dinner with my partner. Um, every single night, no matter how busy we were, no matter how crazy it was. And what that meant was either she would come to me and we'd have dinner at work or I would go to her and then go back to work or we'd have dinner somewhere and then I'd go back to work at home. Um, and so there's a couple of things that are built into that. One is um, a flexibility with her that it's okay to have dinner at work, um, which was a conversation. The second thing was I was able to do work at home, which is just a small thing. But if you can do work at home, then you can go home and do work. And so you can take that time for yourself. Um, but that, what that did is it gave me a separation from work. Um, I really believe in that experience where um, you need fresh eyes. Like if you're looking at a problem and it's so hard and you're just looking at it, looking at it, you step away, you go walk to the coffee shop. I don't even drink coffee, but you walk to the, I walk to the coffee shop, I buy a sparkling water. Right now it's a Topo Chico typically, buy the Topo Chico. I walk back and I look at it and it's a new problem. It's not the same problem that was before I took that walk because I got my brain to refresh. I looked at some things that were far away, looked at some that were close. I saw some green, maybe had some more oxygen. Um, and I found that having dinner every night with my partner, what that did is it just gave me that little reprieve from the problems, from the work, from everything. And I would just sit there and, you know, we'd be sitting there eating a salad really fast. You know, <laughs> 25 minutes later, I'd be back at work. But that 25 minutes was a little bit like a vacation. Mm -hmm. It just reminded me, okay, we're at a different spot. So that was the first thing. The second thing, when I had a startup, I actually really started working out a lot. Um, I'd never worked out in my entire life. I remember the first time I went, I didn't have, I had these basketball shorts that I'd had since high school. I'm 40. I had these, uh, <laughs> I had a tie-dye shirt that someone gave me because they messed it up. And I don't know, I was like kind of trying to get into tie-dye, but it didn't work out. And then I had no shoes. I had to borrow shoes from a friend and I felt so silly to be clear at this point you were not like poor or anything you just did you just hadn't bought these things because this was just like not a part of your life yet right right yeah yeah I I just I was like go to the gym are you serious okay. who does that <laughs> who does that so um I started going to the gym and it was really cool the best part was I was going with these two friends um we'd it was, we'd go at 6 30 in the morning so it was before work, yeah. work out for an hour, um, get breakfast, go to work. Um, it was perfect. Both of them were entrepreneurs. One of them worked out every day. And so he was kind of our mini trainer. So he taught us how to do a gym. Because there's, for me, there was, as like the nerd, I'm like the classic, you know, nerd in high school, like, you know, the AV guy, you know, exactly all those <laughs> things that was me. And so like going to the gym was really intimidating. Yeah. Um, it still is weird, but it's, that it's not intimidating anymore. But that's because I had really good people help teach me and show me that it was intimidating. And especially these folks that, you know, when you're sitting there and you're, you know, bench pressing some weight and 
everyone around you is talking about, yeah, it sucks. You know, I might have to lay off someone or like, yeah, it sucks. Like we're fundraising and it's not working or all these things that are hard. It was really interesting because you're sitting there and it's the first time in the entire history of my startup where I wasn't thinking about that stuff because I was worried about dropping the weight on my face. And that clarity, that moment where I didn't have that in anymore was just beautiful thing. And so I started to really look forward to um, that experience. And um, so now um, I, the only thing I track still aggressively is I don't track my weight I still track it, but I don't look at it as a to react to. I just have it there. Um, but I do track my sleep. And I really try and make sure I learn, sadly, that I'm not Ralph Nader. I need about eight and a half hours to sleep at night. Um, when I learned that, I was really disappointed in myself because I was <laughs> like, man, I want four hours. Four hours <laughs> is the right amount of sleep at night. Yeah. And then I learned that I need eight and a half hours. And my partner does not. It makes me so mad because she goes to bed at the same time I do. And she gets up super early. And I'm just like, oh, oh I wish I had that life. Um, but I just need that sleep. And so I just track my sleep because I know that if I get six hours of sleep, it's just not going to be that good of a day. Mm. If I get seven hours of sleep, it's not going to be bad, but it's not going to be perfect. If I get eight or more, it's going to be a great day. So I know that I have to do that which means I have to track it, which I means I need to look back and say, when did I mess up? Um, and that's, that's been, that's been on, on the health stuff. There's one more thing that I just remembered, which is there's a great app I use called Mood Journal, mm. where you just mm -hmm. asks you, how are you feeling? And you just say, what, however you're feeling, a scale of like Draw one to 10. Smiley face yeah, basically like that. And then, so I have a year or two of just my moods. And what I want to do someday is a project where I look back at all this data and look at my weight, my sleep. Um, I should be tracking food, but I don't. And then just track it to mood. Because hmm. that's honestly what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to feel good. Like, it doesn't matter if you're productive. Like, you just want to feel like you're doing some good stuff. And, and yeah. I feel like mood would be the summary, and those things would be the ingredients. And just see, like, how are things going? Um, you know, this is so interesting for me to listen to because I feel like there was a point where – like physically, I wasn't, I wasn't, I just wasn't feeling good. And, um, I started to actually think about what I ate that day as a function of how I was feeling. Like, you know, you get to a certain age, you start to feel what you eat in your body. Mm -hmm. Um, my exercise was always, uh, getting on my bike and sort of the solitude of being on my bike was very soothing for me and still is. And I went and did like a, a full all day physical cause I hadn't been to a doctor in 10 years. And they told me things like, you're eating too much cheese <laughs> and they also you're, impossible yeah you're drinking too much caffeine you should eat less cheese and also you look like you should have some vitamins and as an adult to have the solution be vitamins felt somewhat ridiculous but i did it and i started feeling better and then i started realizing oh shit my body actually is reacting very clearly to what i'm putting in and it's the first time in my life i started actively thinking about it is it that is, I think that's the worst realization is that like if there is a definition of being an adult, it's like paying bills, paying taxes and realizing that what you put in your body is what you get out of your body. You know, <laughs> that like you have to actually invest in that thing. So you're saying like nothing's definite except death, taxes and flatulence. Is that kind of what just, you're getting at? Not just that, but like if you eat a bunch of shitty food, you're going to feel bad. Yeah, you're screwed. Yeah. If you... And, and what's really complicated about this is the world that we've created where some people, the only access to food they have is shitty food. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and, and we are sitting here in this beautiful office, you know, at a really great conference that's full of privilege and excitement. And we're talking about how 
the performance enhancing drug that we've used is to like eat right to like take vitamins and, and sleep better sleep better and these are things that are that are luxury items and i think that's so that's one thing that really bothers me about our world is when when sleep is a luxury item yeah it's really scary um and there's a couple of great books there's a really good documentary i have the cities of sleep that talks about um sleep merchants in india about these workers who are basically homeless ish um, but they are just kind of wandering around um, trying to find places to sleep and how they have these movie theaters that are just honestly just places for people to sleep. And it was just this thing where I was like, man, when I get that, that eight hours where I feel good, I really need to remember that this is a privilege, like this is a luxury and how, how, how in, in some ways I think, you know, if I have a good day and I've slept well, I've made it, you know, like I'm fine. That's good. This is also making me feel like I am a good dad for not waking up my daughter when she doesn't want to wake up and just right. letting her sleep and let the day start when she's ready. I love that. That's, I would like that more. When, if you fell asleep right now, or no, like just regularly went to bed, let's say 10, 30, 11, whenever you go to bed, 12, whatever, and no one woke you up and there's no, what time would you get up naturally? And then second, what time would you get up if you just said, fuck it, I'm going to sleep more? Ben, what do you think? Well, I'll be honest. My, my kids get up around 7. So that's kind of the, how can I imagine a world where they're not waking me up at 7? Yeah. So like even mentally, I'm having a hard time imagining it. There's still <laughs> the, how early should I go to bed? <laughs> yeah, just suspend, the, suspend reality for a second. Yeah. I feel like there are some weekend days, though, where I sort of get the extra luxury of, of that time. I'll probably roll up around like 10, 30, 11. But I think that that target of like eight hours is very good for me. If I'm in bed eleven, seven o'clock, I feel pretty good in the morning when I get up. I'm pretty much the same as you, except we were we were talking before this about how you used to kind of just burn the candle at both ends I Monday tried to through have Friday sleep for a while. It was the stupidest thing. Yeah, so well, now. it's not even not sleep, right? Like the just not sleeping eight hours from Monday through Friday, and then all of us every Saturday, I pretty much end up sleeping like fourteen to fifteen hours because I'm just killing myself during the week. Especially, I mean, traveling and everything, you know, has an impact on that. But it, it's amazing how uncatchupable that from that you can't like life is like if you don't get that Monday through Friday decent, then the weekend's just shot for me at least. Yeah, I actually wonder how much of um, my my shift in habits is almost completely dependent on my marriage, hmm. or that was like a shot, like something that caused meaningful change, and also moving back to Des Moines because that's where life became about one office, one desk, yeah. one bed, a smaller group of relationships, not on the road, not yeah. doing conferences, things like that, yeah. and my level of happiness has gone up in a way that I don't really know how to describe that or quantify it. It's just, I know it has gone up. I feel better. Yeah. I mean, your life is simplified and there's like very clear kinds of beginnings and ends to things, right? Like it's less all over the place. I'd like to think so. Yeah. Today's got a lot of surprises in it, but otherwise this week's been pretty great. Yeah. Fair enough. So one thing that I'm curious about as a manager, I mean, both of you have managed people and this is something that I think about some days and I feel lucky to have a manager that kind of, you know, if I come in at eight or if I come in at nine or if I come in whenever it's, you know, as long as I'm getting my shit done, we're okay. But how do you establish a, a culture that allows your people to feel that way? Right. So if they're going to, I mean, or do you, if they come in at nine versus come in at eight and you know, they've got 
their own sleep world? How do you kind of manifest comfort for them? Uh, I think about this a lot. Um, I, I had a lot of strong feelings about culture. Um, I probably still do, but I don't have a company, so it's right now, so it's hard to like say I have them right now because the culture is just me. It's like, am I doing well? I'm doing great. Thank you. Great culture. Um, but um, I think there's – so I saw the Evan Spiegel, the CEO of Snapchat, talk uh, a while back, and one of the things he said is that culture is comes only from the founders. Mm. And I think what he was saying was he was saying that they're the de- definers – and then people will follow that. And then that may turn into like much like any culture, like yogurt or whatever, it might turn into a thing, mm-hmm. but they're the ones that are that are putting the flag in the ground and saying, this is when you come in. This is when you go home. This is how you treat work-life balance. This is how you do this. And I think this is something we, we as founders, we oftentimes forget about that. Honestly, we are the most visible person for every employee. They look at, they look up to us, they look to us, they look down on us. They just look at us. They're always looking at us. And I, I feel sometimes like um, it's, it's, we forget that. Um, and I, and I remember, I remember a couple experiences that I had. Um, I once accidentally made an employee cry mm. because I said something and they reacted really strongly. And I was like, what happened? And they're like, well, you know, you're my boss. Like, and I was like, I, I thought we were just friends. And they were like, yeah, no, but you're my boss. We are friends because I knew them before. But right. he's like, but you're my boss. Like when you say something like that, it's not like a friend. It's a boss saying this. It means yeah. much more. And, and it really hurt because I just, I'd, I'd forgotten my place. I'd forgotten that I have more power, that I'd forgotten this. I, I, I became too familiar. And um, that really struck me as I need to watch what I do and watch my behavior because my behavior is kind of like the platonic form of what you expect your employee to behave. And if you act out, then when they act out, you can't be like, why, why'd you do that? An example would be my last, my last company, my co-founder and I, um, <clears throat> we would oftentimes leave 530-ish because then we would go for a walk and we'd talk about stuff. So we were still working, but everyone else just saw us leave the office at five. And so then people started leaving the office at five and I'd just be like, what are we doing? We're a startup. You can't leave at five. You know, but then they're watching me leave at five. And so this is something where our behavior directly, directly, directly influenced these folks. Um, and it, the other the side effect, though, is it actually created a nice call. Everyone left at five. <laughs> it was kind of nice. You know, no one really worked really hard unless they wanted to. And so, I, so it was like this duality there of like we accidentally created this thing because we were going and doing more work, but we weren't so clear about that, and we weren't doing it publicly. What they saw was us leaving at five. And um, another example would be uh, like a founder emptying the trash. Mm-hmm. Like if you go around and empty the trash, your employers will see that that's important, yeah. and they will also empty the trash. Um, there's things like that where it's like the visual thing when you see, you are setting the example. The observability of those examples I think are really important. This might be more important for a smaller company than a bigger one. I think a bigger one, you have multiple people that are those visible examples. But at a smaller company, I think it's so important that you have strong values. Um, I always say don't eat the pizza because the pizza is so good, but it's not healthy, and there's always pizza. Hmm. But it's like – but then if – if I say that and then go eat the pizza, like that's not, yeah. that's, that, that means it's a fake thing. Yeah, I just said a false sentence. So I just think you have to be strong and, and just do what you want people to do. 
That was a good one, man. It, I feel like the um, the comment you made around uh, like the friendship thing is a really interesting construct to get over because as a founder, you don't actually work with anybody you don't like. But if you flip that around, it's very likely you are working with many people over the years, maybe currently, that don't like you. Hmm. And while that's normally not the case, you kind of need to accept it. And that's an interesting thing to get over at some point. And I know that um, you know I've received feedback that even if the desire is to operate as a partner, if you can fire me, but I can't fire you, then that information can't be processed equally or yep. this conversation can't happen in this way. And so being intentional about restructuring the conversation so you can have direct mm. peer conversations I think is important. But you bring up a really good point and, and it's um, important to internalize that so that you can respect where people are coming from. Yeah. Everybody has different reward systems, ways of communicating, demonstrating emotions, engaging in intellectual discussion with respect. Mm-hmm. Everybody is different. And that's certainly been something that for me has taken me a long time to learn and appreciate is, hey, let's get to know everybody's quirks and communicate my quirks so that we have the best working relationship possible. The The timing thing is also interesting. I um, Over the years, when we have people staying later and later and later and later, there demonstrates more unhealthiness in the business and in the people, the more general working hours they're in the building. And if they can find ways of being efficient with their time while they're here, like when they show up, I could care less. Hmm. When they actually leave, I could care less. But people have general habits. And if you're in that single desk for more than eight or nine hours at a stretch staring at a screen, like maybe my job is not actually to yeah. come back and have you show me what you did, but say like, hey, do you want to go for a walk? I'm going on a bike ride tomorrow. Do you want to go? Right. Or, hey... You want to go to lunch? I'm going to go grab a salad really quick. Like trying to draw out those behaviors um, because I have seen those be really powerful and be emulated. One thing that we found, we always found that there's a handful of people, and this has been at every kind of organization I've worked at, that we would, we would call the canaries. The people that would react really strongly to a move or to something early. And at first I would be like, man, every time we do something, this, this person always complains. Yeah. They're always complaining. And then like later, the whole team would complain about the same thing. And so we would start to foster these folks that were canaries. And I call them canaries like canaries in a coal mine. They, gave, they were early warning. And so then what I would do is I'd be like, okay, I'm thinking about, we're thinking about making a change, just some change, like anything. And I would go and purposefully pitch the canaries first. So just have a one-on-one with this person. Just be like, hey, what do you think? I hope you were thoughtful with how frequently you did this. <laughs> I mean, of course, but uh, I'm trying to think of a good example. An example might be um, like a, a change in healthcare or a change in something that is really big deal, but people don't normally have a good, um, normally have a good, like they don't normally pay attention as much. And so we'd want to give it to someone who, who actually is paying attention and just have a really good one-on-one with people who are a little more thoughtful. And at the last company, we had two or three of these folks. And I remember sitting there being like, okay, we have a big change. Um, maybe we're hiring a new person. Maybe we're bringing someone in that's going to like shake things up a little bit. So I'm just going to sit in front of this person and we're just going to be like, hey, just wanted to let you know that we're having this big change. And, um, you know, it might be, you know, we just want your feedback. And, um, you know, these were big changes. So it wasn't every day or every week. It was probably once a quarter, maybe less. 
And they would always give us very good feedback. And the thing about this was that feedback then every time we would get from the whole team if we would have just rolled out that change. So then we could figure out how to fix it. What if we did this instead? Oh, well, that would, that would solve this problem. What if we did this instead? So you start getting more levers by just incorporating a few other people into your decision, not decision making, because the decision was made into how you message it, how you put it out there. I mean, it sounds a lot like just going through an agile development process. Harper, I am a little bit curious about some of that, like seeing, you know, seeing the CEO take the trash out kind of thing. Do you have any kind of weird or fun experiences um, working for for the president, working for Barack Obama? Any ridiculousness? The whole thing was ridiculous in that the thing about a campaign is you're actually not trying to stop burnout. You're like, no, no, no. We got 18 months. You're working 24 hours a day. And they're like, I'm going to burn out. You're like, cool. Me too. Like, that's the, the thing about it is every single person was just going full throttle and it was not safe. It was bad. Um, so then it's about how do you manage burned out employees? And that was an interesting thing of you know that you're that that they are being abused everyone is being abused you know that it's stressful it's hard it's hard on the families um and you know that it's going to be complicated but you also know that you're there to do a thing and the thing will be over and you will take november and december to sleep and to relax um and in some cases it was not good so for instance um, one of my one of the people that worked for us had a child during this time and they joke now I got to meet my child after wow. and that was the joke but it was one of those jokes that was a joke that wasn't funny but it was said as a joke and it was true though like and and that's not what you want i learned a lot there one time we had i had this person come in who i just adored i, I really loved this person a good friend and i they were early on the campaign and they really really made it a lot of difference and they came in and they said i'm gonna quit and i was just like don't quit they're like i'm burnt out I can't do this. And I was like, what if you just came to work and didn't do anything? Like, you're burnt out. Just not do anything. Just, just, but just don't quit. Because you don't want to be the person that quit a week or two before all, everything came to fruition. Mm -hmm. But just come and hang, hang out. Like, just literally hang out in my office. Just be with me. Hmm. Like, just be here because, because that's how we got to this point. Was we wanted to be together doing this thing. And it was like, how do you manage burnout? Not how do you solve burnout. Not how do you stop it. But how do you manage the fact that these people were burnt out? Um, we did a lot with having fun. We did a lot with camaraderie, with, like, making jokes. We tried to make everything less serious. We tried to bring down the pressure a little bit. Um, but... Yeah, there's infinite stories about the campaign. There's books written. There's all sorts of stuff. But the, the funniest thing was just how just ultimately ridiculous it was. Like the president made fun of my beard, you know, like <laughs> things like that. Like he, they used to call us Occupy Campaign because it was right around Occupy Wall Street and all the tech folks looked like occupiers or whatever. Um, they used to, yeah, it was, it was just like a lot of, it was a lot of fun, but it was also something that was like anything it's a lot of insider culture. There's the jokes that work inside, and when you tell them, everyone's just like, I don't understand. <laughs> you know, and it's like this funny thing of you're so close to so many people, and there were 600 people on this one floor, no offices. 
just 600 people on a floor. Um, in, Chicago? in Chicago, there was something like 2 million volunteers that worked on the campaign with you. Um, so you never knew who it could be. It could be Vince Carter, the basketball player. It could be, you know, um, um, I'm trying to, so many people showed up just to help out in some ways. Um, famous entrepreneurs, you know, famous uh, movie stars, whoever, you didn't know who it was gonna be. You'd run into them in the bathroom, whatever. It was so weird. And so the only thing you could do is just kind of embrace it and make it normal. Which means as when you say like, can you think of something interesting? It's like, well, I can't. Like it's just such a weird thing. Um, I can tell you more interesting stories about Threadless or about Modest, but that was like this thing where you're just like, yeah, I don't know, man, that was wild. What does it take to surprise the two of you at this point in your lives? Like what, what level of insanity does it take to catch you two off guard? In business, I should say. Well, my whole thing is I feel like I'm really good during crisis. So I'm, I'm honestly more, more freaked out when it's, things are going well. When things, everything is great and things are just fucking chilling, you're, I'm just like, oh, God, something's going to happen. Like, oh, no. Like, everything is great. Like, this is terrible. Um, so I don't know. Ben? I feel similar. Maybe not. Um, yeah, after a while, it's just sort of like, well, new problem. That's kind of exciting. Right. Um, also, all the value gets built when, like, there's kind of big problems to solve. And you have great people, too. Yeah. That's the other thing is I, I noticed, like, especially Dwala, I'm walking around and there's there's all these really great people. And you have these just wonderful people. And when you have a really bad problem, you have a really badass team. Right. It makes dealing with the problem a lot less stressful, especially when you have context for when there was no badass people to help right. and it was totally your fucking problem. Right. Yeah. So like in that way, it um, I think the trick is also and I have a lot of respect for you for this is um, when there's one way to look at it when things are going well, if you're concerned about like that being a signal that maybe like something's wrong, you can't see. But it is probably a healthy paranoia to start looking out for what can go wrong to protect the things that are good. Right. Which I think is a really positive trait. It's hard too. I and mean, we did a lot on the campaign about um, testing for failures, just trying to see the failure before it happened. And technical failures or other types? Uh, since we were a technical team, it was primarily technical, but it could be anything. So a lot of game daying, a lot of scenario planning, um, and and Dylan, game game day, game, game day would be like um, like a like they call it in the military like a tabletop exercise. So you just start running through scenarios oh, about okay. what could happen. So for instance, um, one of the ones we did, uh, and my co-founder Dylan Richard, he he wrote a book about this. So you can find it on Amazon. But one of the things that's interesting is it's a really really good team building exercise. So the reason we started was not to find out interesting things about the about the organization, about our tech, was actually because we talked to this guy named um, Mark, who is now at MailChimp, who said, um, we were like, how do we get the team to be more cohesive? He's like, why don't you do a game day? If you do a game day, it's like a fun, a lot of camaraderie. Um, have them come in and just you just you just kind of mess with the infrastructure and everyone and it's, so it's using it's like puzzles. It's kind of fun. It's it's not high pressure because you're doing it on like. A copy of the infrastructure you're doing it on dev servers whatever but it is this thing where it is very much a um, test and it's and it's it's a demonstration of their intelligence and brawn and what they have built and if it works it's great if it doesn't work it's also great and so we were like great we'll do this so we did it 
And then it was really fun, like really fun. So Dylan was like a DM, like he was this dungeon master. So he set out, he gave this sheet, he said that he gave an agenda. This is what we're gonna test. At 10 a.m. we're testing the databases. At, and, and he did that, but also at 10 a.m. he also turned off DNS for our entire infrastructure. So like, you know, at, at 11 o'clock when we're testing whether, you know, EC2 can, we can bounce nodes, he turned off all the queues. You know, so he also was doing things in behind to emulate real failures. Mm -hmm. And so then we came in on a Saturday, you know, we had some, you know, food and we went through the process and then we started. And then for about 12 hours, it was just running into problem after problem after problem after problem after problem. And what it did is it gave us this, what, what, we, what was just like a run book. So it'd be like, oh, um, the Ushahidi instance crashed and the database, there's a lot of database, memory pressure on the database. And we're like, okay, page 22. Right, because we saw that. We knew what to do then, mm -hmm. which meant that when everything went wrong, it wasn't actually going wrong. Because going wrong is when you don't know. Yeah. It was just like one of the things. We just had a task, and we just, oh yeah, just you know, add, add more memory to that cluster and then it'll be fine. Oh, now it's fine. Okay, then you're done. And it was nice because it was just the team doing what the team does best. That's why we, they were there, that's why we were there. And they just got to demonstrate this, and then we had this thing, and then we didn't see any issues. So during election day, which is really what we were planning for, um, it just worked. Now, that doesn't mean that we didn't have technical issues or we didn't have to do things. That just meant that when that thing came up, we didn't actually fail. We didn't go down. We just had the thing. Oh, go to page 22. Oh, yeah, you got you to gotta, you know, you reboot that server or turn off the maps or whatever it might be. Um, and so we did this at Modest a little bit as well where we were like, how do we run through the scenarios of failure to understand how we react to that. And the best part is the team loved it. Did you ever do it in a business context? Like new product release, product fails? Not as much, but we built a little bit of that into our process. Um, but n we didn't do it as elaborate. But I think probably one of the reasons is we never got to the point where we had a really good business. <laughs> so we, we didn't... We definitely, excuse me, tested users and made sure that things wouldn't go down, et cetera. But, we, but, I, but I mean, it's a good idea. I think you could easily do it. Well, one of the things I know for us that has definitely <laughs> changed over time is that when you get all those really nice, smart people together, status updates are kind of worthless because after a while, you have enough trust with one another that you'd trust that if something was going wrong, they would tell you. So when you get them together, using the time as uh, more of a strategic discussion and making it a working session, trying to work through what's good, what's bad, how do we solve for this problem yeah. with the right people openly and honestly, um, that's definitely a shift that's been really positive for us. It took us a while and was kind of a, a – it was led actually by our board saying, hey, let's restructure this time in this way. And that started to restructure time internally to work more through strategic topics, which was a fantastic change. You kind of compliantly have to do portions of this, though, right? Like one of the things that I remember from my time back at Bloom being like SEC mandated to have this backup and everything else. Like we had so much of like the, you know, disaster recovery plan of, you know, we're going to go to this building and we're going to do this if something really bad happens. But we also only had like one data aggregator that if at the end of the day, if that data aggregator went down or some piece of web scraping broke, like the business was broken. So I know there's compliant levels, but do you have like business-oriented things that you've done along those lines? Well, we have we have lots of programs for managing risk um, from a technical business process perspective, and um, 
to the business's benefit, I am no longer good enough to work on those teams. So, you know, like my awareness of certain things is knowing where we have redundancies and who our multiple ISPs are and things of that nature. Um, but certainly a benefit to acquiring certain certifications and going through certain audits is they help you level up and give you guidance on best practices. Some of those best practices, don't get me wrong, are a little bit confusing when you're looking at new tech versus tech that was built when the actual requirement was written. Mm -hmm. Some of that stuff's really confusing from my perspective, but the processes get put in place as the company grows up, which is an exciting thing because it, it minimizes risk. So both of you have background in fintech. Give me kind of the, the quick version of the Harper background just for everybody on the fintech side. I've just don't, always done e-commerce. I really, okay. I really hate it. I, just, I really don't like it. I think it's a pain in the ass. And it's, I always called it donut, like it's a donut product. It's just, you're just chasing edge cases and you never actually build the core product. You're just constantly going in a circle and you create this donut and you're just like, what are we doing here? And everyone's like, I don't know. We just, it's just edge cases. Um, and that's e-commerce. And I always think about this book from, I think, in the late 90s called Business at the Speed of Stupid. And it's all about these case studies of e-commerce businesses where, you know, someone, an entrepreneur like myself would stand up and would be like, I'm going to build an e-commerce product that sells shower curtains. And everyone's like, yay. And then I'm going to raise a million dollars. And then like $700 million later, we launch. And that's the thing about e-commerce is it seems really easy but it's really, really complicated, and there's always edge cases for the most ridiculous stuff. Um, my favorite is like a t-shirt. You sell a t-shirt, um, and then you have a white t-shirt, and then you add something on it. Okay, so now you have two SKUs, and then you had the next thing, and you have three SKUs, but this one has four colors, so then you have variants, and then you have sizes, and then you have like, this one has a tag on, tag off, so then you have like, next thing you know, you have this like, this kind of, uh, I don't even know what you call it, I mean, there's definite words for it but you have this taxonomy that's what you call it that is uh, that is huge and really complicated and so then if you're writing software like we wrote for modest you're trying to imagine any possible edge case that any possible e-commerce company um, provider would ever use Explain modest. modest was a very simple e-commerce platform for mobile okay. um, and so our goal was um, you'd go to like a great uh, boutique like Raygun here in Des Moines and you'd go to them and you'd say you want a mobile app they'd say yes of course um, because our mobile conversion blows um, and we would say yeah use this um, and you they can connect their store upload all their products and then they have a very easy to use mobile app that has a very high conversion rate um, and it worked really well and um, it was it was awesome and I, I like it but I hated doing it just because it just is, I just wish it was very straightforward. I'm always admire places that sell one thing, hmm. like literally one thing. Like if I want to, if I'm gonna make a store, I want to sell one thing, like a bolt, or like a print. If no, if you if there's a new print, you gotta start a new company. <laughs> like I'm just, I just don't like that part about e-commerce. Yet I have done it for 20 years. Maybe I'm reacting to this, and I, I think. I often think the more you complain about something, the more you get to do it in the future. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so, I'm pretty so I'm pretty sure that like I'm going to be like, never again. And then two weeks later, I'm going to be like, well, yeah, we'll, we'll probably do this again. Um, so I'm a little <laughs> worried about that. So, uh, yeah, I, I, might be, I might be like the teenager acting out, like, I don't want to do this. And then it turns out I actually love it. So I don't know. So you spent some time at PayPal too, right? Yeah. How did you end up at PayPal? And what was that experience like? 
Well, PayPal bought Modest in 2015, mm -hmm. and me and my team went over there to run what turned out to be PayPal Commerce. And then in 2017-ish, um, that team, most of them moved over to Venmo, and mo a lot of them run Venmo now. And so a lot of those folks are doing Venmo, which is really exciting um, because it was really neat to see this team that were that was we built to be gazelles. The cool part about gazelles is like they're, they're like, I like to say they're born to run. It's not just a, spr a Springsteen song, you know. It's it's like this idea where it's like you see those people that are born to build big things. They're born to do this really high intense thing, you know. And 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 so they're at Venmo and they love it and. Um, I'm really proud of a few of them. Uh, I mean, I'm proud of all of them, but there's a few of them that have really stood up and kind of taken big roles at Venmo, and it's pretty cool because when they started with us, they were they were new, like real new. And so it's neat to see this kind of person that we didn't take a chance on because we knew they were going to be great, but um, see them really flourish in that. And so, um, yeah, so I was at PayPal for a few years, two and a half years. Um, it was really wonderful. One of the things I learned about, or that I loved about PayPal, learned about it as well, is that PayPal's really global. I think if there's a blind spot in startups in the U.S., it is a lack of focus on the globe. Yeah. And I would agree with that. It's definitely a um, U.S., 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 yeah. and you kind of come up out of the weeds. Yeah. It's a hell of a lot more opportunity. Matthew spoke to this really well yesterday. Right. And why, why do you guys think that is? I think it's because it's hard as shit. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree with you. I, I also think hard equals expensive yeah. and a lot more unknowns in a place where we don't speak the language, we can't influence the laws, and quite frankly, we may not necessarily be welcomed by default. Yeah. So how you start and operate a company in China is not how you start and operate a company in the United States as a U.S. citizen. It doesn't mean that the Chinese market isn't amazing and vast and incredible. And as Matthew said, that there aren't more undocumented people in China than there are people documented in the right. United States. But it doesn't make it easy. And to right. solve that problem, you can't stay on one street. Right. And that's I, I think about it a little bit very similarly, but I think about it like this. If the three of us wanted to build a business that just had 100% penetration of Des Moines, just Des Moines, that would be difficult. It wouldn't be impossible, just hard, it's a startup. I agree. What if we wanted to do the US and Germany? Because that's like extra hard, way harder than just Des Moines. Um, but PayPal, for whatever reason, seeing them focus on just around the world. So I traveled all over the world with PayPal, um, Europe, Southeast Asia, China, Australia, um, and it was every place had an identity for PayPal. In China, it was a lot of cross-border, super cool to look at those businesses, see those businesses, big opportunities there. Um, Australia, it was it was a payments platform for the consumers, not necessarily uh, 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 what they call peer-to-peer, -peer, but just like this really neat thing. Uh, in Europe, in many places, it was a luxury brand. Like people really liked it when they saw PayPal. Um, and every single place I went, people loved PayPal. And when you read the tech press, everyone hates PayPal. And that's one of the reasons why I hate the tech press, because the tech press actually doesn't know. Like, everyone hates PayPal because of like 2003. They think of PayPal in 2003 and they're like, yeah, it was shitty then, shitty now. And it's now like, one of the tough things for PayPal definitely is when dealing directly with a consumer. One of the things we also talked about yesterday was if you're looking for this company screwed up. Yeah. There's always somebody who's willing to say, yeah, this person screwed up in in a payment flow yeah. that touches people in, in that right. way. And don't get me wrong, they got it wrong a lot of times. Yeah. But some of the stuff is 
it's also very hard to know in payments and it impacts people really negatively. Yeah. And for a long time, yeah. And for a long time, PayPal, unfortunately was kind of the, it was the company and I don't know if it still is, but it was the company that people were looking out for them making another mistake to make an example of them. So I would actually challenge that a little bit and say, that is the tech press and that normal people don't believe that because there's this thing that every time I would be coming from PayPal in San Jose, all the Uber drivers would be like, I love PayPal. And it was this thing that I found that normal people really loved PayPal. And it was this weirdest thing because I came in and I was like, we we're excited about it. We were really stoked about it, but we were still working for PayPal. It was the man. So was like, I, I do agree with you in many, in many ways. And when I was a kid, my first company that I started while I was in high school, I got a PayPal account and that's how I got paid from everybody. So PayPal was actually like the anchor for me to get started making money on the internet. And on the flip side of that, in the old Dwalla, we would get merchants or things like that that ended up with PayPal problems and then it'd come over. But what we ended up finding out much later on was that PayPal was just not a good platform for those business types. And those sure. business types were not all bad. For sure. It could exactly. have been. And they're very strict because they're so big. So they would kick off masses of people. I mean, yeah. they had uh, 14 million merchants. That's a large number of merchants. And so when you have 14 million merchants, um, if you accidentally kick off 100,000, no one will notice. And you might have done it because of a compliance issue. We no longer support this type of business. And that type of business, unfortunately, might have been a very good business for a lot of people. And so you're really hurting a lot of people, but you're doing it so that you don't hurt 14 million other merchants. And that's a hard thing to wrap my head around because I've never been at that scale. Um, but yeah, it was amazing. Being at PayPal was an incredible experience. And they, you know, I, I said this, I, I've said this before, you know, if I was in a position where PayPal was the another was a potential acquirer of my company, I had a chance, I would do it again. Because I really appreciated the work they did to support us. But more importantly, I just thought that um, they are a decent company. Now, it's 20 years old, which which means it's an old, it's a big old company. This is not a new kind of thing. So it's kind of a, it's a, it's not a startup. Yeah, but that's a great advertisement for them. That's a great show of support for someone to say they acquired my company, and if they acquired another one, I would go back. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I think that's meaningful. It's incredible. They, they, it's so weird because it's old and it's established and it's big and it's not this. It is the incumbent, but what I saw, like how they were thinking about you know doing international, I was just like, yeah. This is exciting. They're taking advantage of all the things that I love about the internet, about the world, about money, about commerce. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, it's like, as we know, as we're sitting in Douala, as we're sitting in a startup that's relatively successful in this space, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, and you can make a lot of people's lives way better by doing a little bit of work. And so if you spend a lot of time doing a lot of work, you're going to make really great strides within this world. I just hope it's not me doing that work. <laughs> How much of that international kind of like U.S. bias, I guess, do you think comes from just how little we travel as a population? Like just how few Americans actually leave the United States before they're 18. You think that plays into it? I don't know that it necessarily plays into it for the people that are running the companies because the people running the companies tend to travel a lot, right? Um, But I will say as we look at international markets it's a there are big bets every single one of them is a big bet it is a big body of work and it requires 
a lot of coordination. And I do think those things come with a lot of new risk and a lot of new complexities that just simply need to be worked through. And I think we are working also through a time at which things like data equality globally is not clear. Um, even data management and privacy management globally is not clear. And as if we think about one of the things we also heard yesterday was data as oil. Mm-hmm. That in my mind goes straight to, okay, so we have all these regulations to control oil and all these things that happen. At what point will individuals who don't understand technology start to write laws that regulate how data works? That's kind of already happening, right? Not everybody wants it to flow equally. So as you think about how your venture-funded business that is uh, responsible for lots of people and users and jobs and end users, how much, how many unknowns can you solve for when no one really has any idea how a lot of this new stuff is going to pan out? I think like the state of the internet is now a question when you think about international expansion. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember another time where that was the case. I don't know. Can you Harper? Well, no, I mean, but I also think there's uh, it might've always been there, but we might've not noticed it because we also didn't have, it was not on anyone's radar. Like I, I think, uh, I always think about my experience after 2013. Um, I went and spoke all around the world, talked about all the cool stuff we do with data on the Obama campaign, and I got to Germany, and everyone was like, you're a terrible person. <laughs> and they were like, what you've done with data is really bad. Aren't you thinking about privacy, et cetera, et cetera? And I was just like, no, I don't understand, and I really don't understand. And then after talking to a lot of people, and I thought it was very hypocritical, because I talked to a journalist who would just say, you're doing really bad things with data. You need to be th- more thoughtful of privacy while they were using Facebook like in their, on their phone. And I was just like, this is really hypocritical. But then I started thinking, um, a place like Germany has a very aggressive historic context around data with World War II and the Nazis, with the Stasi, with all this stuff. And so they have a very different perspective than I do. I have not yet been hurt by data. Um, you know, I, maybe my identity has been stolen, but I've had the privilege and opportunity to, to not be hurt by that data. But there are people that are alive today that that is not true for. And so I think what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of those folks get a voice and say, hey, wait. And the thing is, I think they were always hurt, but I think we're starting to hear. And that's where I'm very interested in how this plays out because I've become very skeptical of some of the stuff that, w- that I've even built. Um, I think like GDPR, a lot of people talk shit about GDPR. I think it's probably great. Like it's probably way better. To I agree with like you. That. I mean, the ethics of the people who operate the system after it's built have a lot to do with whether or not the system does good or evil. Right. And because you know your own ethics, that's one thing. But how do you think about the ethics of the software after you right. leave or, it? Or we invented a way, like, you know, the, the people I worked with on the Obama campaign, my team, et cetera, invented a way to do messaging on Facebook that was very aggressive. Um, worked great for us. But now it's like, well, we're not in control of that. It wasn't something that wasn't a product, not patentable. It was an idea. Um, And other people use it. And now it's in the news as being this terrible thing. Mm -hmm. And I agree it's terrible, but I didn't then. And I think that's where it's a question about what has changed. Well, nothing has changed except I won. (laughs) And so then it's like when you you win, it's good. But when someone else wins, it's bad. And that can be put in business too. When you're doing it and you're making money, oh, it's fine to break regulations. It's fine to do this. And mm-hmm. I have a lot of friends that were, you know, early at Uber and they, 
I, I actually really like some of the stuff that they've done. I think overall it is probably positive, but we oftentimes look at the winners as winning and the losers as losing and the losers have done bad and the winners have done good. But what if the winners have done bad too? I don't know. Like, I think we really need to look at and think about these, like data as oil is such a strong statement, but I think it's probably even more. It's not just data. Um, it's more about like, what are the unintended consequences? Because data as oil is fine. Um, and maybe it is right because there's a lot of maybe, I, I don't know, there's probably good things that come from oil. You know, like plastic, polluting our oceans. Uh, what? What? I'm trying to wait. Wait a minute. Um, <laughs> but it's like I'm sure there's good things. But I, I just think it's like how do we think about the unintended consequences more than just say oil is a currency mm-hmm. or data is a currency? Um, and I don't know how to do that. Yeah, I think the I think the data as oil thing is a is a good example on a political stage, and the good example on a political stage also calls into question. Okay, so what stupid things do does humankind do in the name of getting access to more oil and controlling oil? For sure, for sure. And for in sure. a political conversation, that that certainly scares me. And I think, oh my God, how many engineers do you have around you to explain how these systems work? You think about working yeah. in a telecom and all the different agreements oh telecoms have between data providers or insurance. Right, like now, we're in the insurance town right now, and it's the same thing. You have you have this person, this person, and you're passing this data around, and like, it's crazy thinking about those problems. Yes, absolutely. And when we're talking about healthcare, and if the solution to healthcare is revolution, what happens when you throw governments and international politics on top of data equality? Explain that. Rewind a tad bit and explain the healthcare uh, solution being revolution for context. Well, so the the healthcare, we were having a conversation. You. <laughs> 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 The healthcare. We were talking about some of the. Um, actually, this came out of something you were speaking of. It probably yeah, it was be- this very simple idea of um, my. I have a simple belief, which is people shouldn't go bankrupt for health. Like obviously, there's fringes, edge cases, etc. Of like, yes, this person, you know, like was addicted to drugs, whatever, 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 whatever. It's like I don't care. Generally speaking, I think people should not go bankrupt for health, and. We were talking to someone that works in insurance. I was talking to someone who works in insurance, and they were like, they agreed totally. It was, there was no like, but it was like everyone agreed. And then they said, and we kind of were in this conversation of like something's gonna give. Like we're at this point in our society where normal people are being punished for being for having something happen to them that have they've no control of. They got a cancer. They got hurt at work. Like something happened. And and in many cases some really bad things happened. Like I hurt myself at work and then through a negligent doctor that was just doing what they thought they were going to do, I'm now addicted to pills. You know, and so it's like these things are really bad and they're really, really big. Um, And so it's like something's got to give. And I was joking. It's like revolution or there was a couple of options. I don't remember what they were, but I think something will give and I wonder what it will be. And um, Corey Doctorow just wrote a really good book called Radicalized, um, which gives a scenario which is really depressing. Um, But there's a lot of like, Something's got to give. Yeah, I think that the um, I don't know that like revolution is actually a solution for the sake of the con- the conversation being interesting, right? Yeah. It, it was it was interesting to me that as we we talked about sort of this general mistrust that already exists that everybody can agree does exist. That when once having a conversation about imagine nothing was off the table, how do we actually solve this problem? What do people with influence do? And the problems of impacting healthcare are certainly complex enough that it seemed like there was general agreement that is, I don't know. 
like maybe this hyper extreme thing because maybe we would get it right after this thing, which is probably not a good idea in of itself. (laughs) But as I think about risks with like data specifically and the decisions that our politicians are going to make over the next five and 10 years and how they impact our kids and our kids' health insurance and where that health insurance is underwritten and by what bank, Mm -hmm. there are complexities I don't understand, but I'll admit, I unfortunately feel like I now know enough about the world that I am scared of those things. One of the common threads in this whole conversation is politics, right? Like just paying attention to policy, paying attention to regulation. And so much of that maybe comes from the state, but predominantly comes from Washington, comes from kind of the federal side of things. How important is it, I guess, through one lens, and this is kind of more so to you, Ben, for fintech founders to pay attention to politics, to pay attention to those kinds of things. And I'm curious from you, Harper, on maybe just like a more of an entrepreneurial perspective uh, generally, maybe through fintech lens too, but how much does that matter? Because I know most founders that I am having conversations with are not incredibly engaged. If they're not incredibly engaged, there's probably an increased likelihood of downline problems. Mm. Like this isn't necessarily a space where failing to consider what regulations apply to you is an option that you have. And there's an extension to that that I think is important that it is what um, regulatory bodies want to have oversight over you. Because as a relatively undefined entity, what you're going to see and what we're already seeing happen is that regulators are taking stances about additional um, parts of the world that they want to regulate. And you don't really have an option to say no when they come to the door. And that's, that's okay. Yeah. On the flip side of that, from like even five years ago, the amount of regulatory access around how money moves and the knowledge access it's increased so dramatically that if you don't know, it's your own fault and you're lazy. You know, FinCEN has also done a really good job at leading the way on defining who is regulated in what way. And even new industries like cryptocurrency and how tokens can be used for X, Y, and Z. And if you follow it, the likelihood of your success is going to go way up. I mean, look at Coinbase. Mm -hmm. They have followed the law and they have sort of, from my perspective, been the best team at executing against following it in their market. And that company is is absolutely incredible. They used it as a competitive advantage. Yeah. What about politics, though, Ben, before we hop over to you, Harper? What about like following an election? I understand ones and zeros way better than I understand politics. And the thing about politics uh, that I'm always happy to say is I'm always happy to share my opinion with a politician but I don't actually know how to leverage politicians. I don't know how to impact laws other than share an opinion. Mm-hmm. This is certainly one that Harper, I have really no experience with. What do you think, man? Well, I think it's very simple. We just talked about regulation a bunch and it's, and it's like, we all have grandparents or have had, or, or we interact with old people. Mm-hmm. Do you want them making the regulation for your industry? Right. If you like, I, I, you know, have a lot of friends that are, that are, that are very good, happen to be older. They have no idea about this new world. I barely know about this world and I'm an, I'm theoretically an expert. And what I'm saying is we want, we need to make sure that the people that are making regulations actually know about this world. This is a new world. New as in when was the internet, when did it come out in a meaningful way? 
25 years ago, 30 years ago. And if we don't have politicians, regardless of what side, what they represent, that have a good understanding of the internet, how do we expect them to make regulation that is actually going to be beneficial for the participants and users of the internet, which is the future people, the youth, the young people? And I always, I always think about this, I worry about this a lot. Um, and I've interacted with a lot of politicians. Many of them are very good at asking for help. So get ex- experts in, you know, you, and, and, and if you are listening and you, you know or are by a congressperson's house like, or, or office, go there and say, look, I'd love to help out. I'd love to help out in technical policy. Um, they take all this information and they, they synthesize it into a view. Into, and, and, and oftentimes the only people that are doing that have a vested interest in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we get very specific regulation about very specific things. You're like, how could this happen? Well, because some interest was there and we weren't. And so I think what this means is we need, we need to vote different people into office, younger people, people that are internet first. Um, I think we need to get them into the office and you know, they have other views as well, but I guarantee if we get some entrepreneurs or some business folks or some FinTech folks into office, they're gonna have a specific view on this stuff that'll be better. But we should do that for every issue. Every issue I think needs to have someone that has an actual experience with that issue because data, like scams against older folks are different than scams against younger folks. You need someone that can do both. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I worry a lot that the current members of Congress, many of which um, have been there for dozens of years, if not tens of years, um, that they just don't have what it takes on both sides of the aisle to actually handle internet regulation, whether it's fintech, whether it's uh, like privacy data, whether it's content, whether everything. Like who is going to break up Facebook if you have people that literally don't understand Facebook? Right. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, the, the training topic or at least the knowledge topic is you think about how much training someone has to have to be a subpar developer. You probably put me in like the sub, 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 subpar <laughs> column of that or bucket. But you need no training to pass a law which impacts the technology that person can create. And there are elements of that which I think are ethical, which I think the current folks can handle that. I think they can handle the ethical side, but without a deep or at least a topical understanding of what the downline impacts are, they don't have enough information to make an ethical choice. That's concerning. I, I hope there are a number of people that are taking it upon themselves to learning more about the technology they're thinking about regulating. In the fintech space specifically, I think the regulators are extremely, extremely good. Let's rewind 10, 15, 20 years. Let's go back to to Ben before he had a little bit of gray in the beard. And Harper, I don't see any gray, but I think you just color. Oh, I see it. There it is. There it is. Okay. Um, What would you guys be working on? If, you know, sitting here today, 2019, what are the things that are most important that you would be kind of sprinting towards for your careers? 15 years ago? 15, 20, whatever. Kind of basically just think of like, you know, 18-year-old Ben. Is the idea. I like that 15 years ago I was 18. I like that. That's great. That's <laughs> I, good, I still good. don't see the gray. So it's new math. Yeah. New math. <laughs> I would probably go to school like I normally did, engineering school, whatever, computer science school or liberal arts school, whatever I got into. And then I would immediately just hang out as much as I can with friends and be a young person. Because mm. one of the things I think we have now, and I don't know why, I think it might be because the world seems so dire, but 
I see a lot of young people trying to become CEO faster, mm -hmm. trying to become an executive faster, trying to be that senior manager, senior engineer, senior whatever faster, yeah. and not having fun as a youth. And when I was in my 20s, all I did was go to clubs. I didn't do a damn thing until I was 30. I loved it. It was the best. I look back at that time and it was such an amazing time because nothing really was super important and I could hang out and we, we were all tech folks. We had side projects. We did things. We won awards. We were, we still did big stuff. Like we shipped big things, but on the weekend I just hung out with my friends, yeah. you know, and, and it was so, we accidentally got promoted because we just did work that we had value that we did, did a value, but we, none of us wanted to be a CEO. Um, I also made no money. There's zero money involved with that that process. But I look back and I have just amazing, ridiculous experiences um, that I would never trade. Um, and it also taught me a lot about people and how to be a manager and all these things about interacting. Um, and it also gave me this thing where like I, I look back and I'm like, that was great. And I talk to young entrepreneurs today and they're like, I, I'm thinking about dropping out because I want to be an entrepreneur. And in my head, I'm like, do what you need to do. Like, I don't want to stop you from doing it. But I'm also thinking in my head, I'm like, yeah, but I did, I got this stupid job and it paid me money. And then at night I went and partied my ass off and it was so much fun. And that's me. I'm an extrovert. I like that kind of thing. But I, I, I worry what happens. Like, so I've been being an entrepreneur for let's say 15 years now. And like, if I didn't have that time, like I would be very concerned that I would not be able to handle this time. And I wonder what happens if, if you like, do you freak out when you're, when you're 35 and suddenly want to go hang out at clubs and stuff? Maybe that's, maybe I had my midlife crisis early, I guess. I don't know. I just think I would, I would really push myself just to hang and travel way more because I didn't travel at all in my twenties. How about you? I'm trying to think, I mean, even as I'm sort of contrasting, uh, what you're saying against what I know I'm going to say as I'm a very self or I try to be a self-aware introvert and in being introverted, I know that there are ways that I meet people. I meet people by working on problems. Yep. And when my life became around or became about finding people to work on problems with, it also was like a breakthrough for me in having a more enjoyable life. And my reward system is when those problems have positive impacts and I get to see that impact other people. And in our current business, that kind of manifests itself where I get to see the innovations our customers build on the platform. And that gives me like all the juice I need to keep going. And I dropped out of college uh, because I had customers and I just stopped going. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing for me would have been a little bit different in that I wasn't well educated on what type of educational opportunities there were. But I actually don't know if I follow that path. I think I would probably just like maybe drop out of high school and start working on stuff hmm. and be more confident about applying for things like a fellowship somewhere where I can sit in a corner and like soak up knowledge and ask questions and then kind of float from problem to problem and topic to topic until I found one that I was able to throw 10 years against. And it kind of... I hope my kids don't actually ever hear me say like, maybe I would, should have just dropped out of high school. But <laughs> yeah. I actually think for me, maybe that would have been the best thing. Huh? Well, it sounds like neither of you 
are too far off from the path that you should have or would have taken today? I mean, it sounds like both of you kind of did what you were going to do, but maybe just a couple years later or something. Yeah, I mean, I feel pretty good about it. I just wish I would have put the things I learned to work faster. Yeah. Just took time the first time around. Well, yeah, it seems. I'm a pretty big YOLO guy. (laughs) And uh, I really, I think that's like, everyone made fun of it when it came out because all these, you know, kids would be like, YOLO, and then they'd run their car off a cliff and you'd be like, well, yep. Um, But it's like, I think there's this thing of like, that is such a strong idea. Like, I never want to regret that's my biggest fear is regretting something. And so if, if uh, like when I was a kid, my dad said, get your passport because you never know when someone's going to say, get on the plane, let's go. Hmm. And it's like, what is that? What are the things you can prepare for that random thing of like, let's just go. Like, let's start a company. A friend of mine said, uh, Brian Holcomb, he said, you know, all life's best decisions start with fuck it. Yeah. And I really believe that where you're just sitting there and you're like, you're like, what are we doing this weekend? I don't know. I don't know. Fuck it. Let's go to Italy. And it's like, what? You know, like, but you have to put yourself in a position where that fuck it, let's blank, whatever it might be, start a company, have yeah. a kid, get married. Um, all of these things that are such these big things, they're so scary until you just say, fuck it, let's do it. And then you do it and you look back and you're like, why didn't I do this earlier? And I think that's the thing. That's my main like thing. It's like, like when Ben was like, yo, you want to come to Des Moines and speak at this conference? It's like, yeah, fuck it, let's do it. You know, and that's kind of the vibe where it's like, say yes. Um, obviously, don't say yes to everything. Do whatever you want. I, I don't care. I don't do whatever you want. But for me, it is like, it really is this like, yeah, fuck it, let's just do it. Let's yeah. see what happens. And I, I love that. And I think that's powered my most of my life. Um, but because of that, I'm very lucky and I don't have strong regrets. And more importantly, if I die, I feel like I would be like, that was pretty cool. I had a good life. I always think about like when you die and your like cartoon ghost is floating uh-huh. up, like and you look back. I never want to be like, damn it, I died that way. You know, I never want to be like. That's why I don't want it to have a shitty meeting. I don't want to meet people I don't want to meet. Yeah. Like if someone's a dick, I don't want to hang out with them. Yeah. Like you know, I, all these kind of silly rules. Like it's like I just don't want to do that because I don't want to get on a bus and then crash the bus crash and I die and reflect and like my last meeting was with someone I didn't want to meet with. No way, man. I'm just gonna do good stuff. That is an awesome, awesome, awesome spot to end. Thank you both so much for the time. Ben Harper, this was awesome, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of For Fintech's Sake. I really hope you enjoyed the interview with Ben and Harper. And after that last note, I really hope that you think that the interview was worth listening to and that that was a good use of time and that there are no regrets. So with that said, uh, a couple quick ways to get in touch with us in case you do have any questions or you want to continue the conversation. Uh, You can get in touch with me personally on Twitter at Zach Pettit. Uh, You can get in touch with me personally at my email at zach.pettit and nbkc.com. And to get in touch with For Fintech's Sake more broadly, you can get online at forfintechsake.com or find us on Twitter at forfintechsake. With all that said, please subscribe, rate, review, do all those things that people always ask you to do, except you're actually going to do them because of this real impassioned ask that I'm giving you right now. Please, please, please hop on the Apple Store or wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review so other people can find For Fintech's Sake along with you. Have a wonderful week and keep an eye out for new episodes coming soon.